We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, Sally Sue is speaking with Dr. Damien Madigan, who is a registered architect and senior lecturer in architecture at UniSA, among the many hats that he wears. Holding a PhD from Monash University, Damien collaborates with academics, industry and government to create suburban infill typologies for changing demographics. As an individual and collaborator, Damien's housing propositions have won design competition awards, shortlistings and commendations from the City of Los Angeles, New South Wales State Government, the City of Sydney, Architecture Australia and the Guangzhou International Award for Urban Innovation. Let's jump in. Today we have Dr Damien Madigan joining us today on this episode. Damien's a long-term friend of ours because long time ago we had him appear on season one and uh, before we dive into this episode let me introduce Damien to everyone. Um, Damien's got a lot of titles <laughs> and really good diverse backgrounds uh, that really uh, makes him a valuable guest on our episode today. He's an architect, an academic, a housing researcher which we'll talk a bit more about later in the episode. Um, he's got his new publication coming through Bluefield Housing, which we'll dive into even more later. Also, he's a fellow of the Australian Institute of Architects, a member of the South Australian State Government Design Review Panel, and many more other titles, including um, his participation and Uni Essay Creative. So he's a long-time academic. Welcome, Damien. Thank you very much, Sally. <laughs> I think today brings us great pleasure to having you on board because I remember you on season one a long time ago. Yes, I believe I kicked that off. I think I might have been the first voice um, <laughs> to be interviewed back in 2019. Mm. Excellent. And I think uh, to recap, that was not so long ago, wasn't it? Uh, it was. I mean, it feels as if it was in a way because, you know, a lot of a lot of ground's been covered since then. Of course, we've had you know, a pandemic in the meantime, which has thrown everyone you know around. But yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, to pinpoint it, that was 2019. Mm. What were we talking about in 2019 back I think then? From from memory, we had a great discussion around culture and do we, as architects, respond to culture? Do we create it? And I think you know, the answer, of course, is that it's a, a bit of a mix of the two. And I remember talking about things in terms of uh, even a student experience I just had before the podcast was recorded where a student was talking about wanting to to do something classical and timeless. So they were going to design something, you know, more or less from a Victorian era, I think. And I remember sharing on that podcast this discussion I had with the student about, well, you know, is it really timeless if we're designing something of a different era and sort of got quite philosophical about that? I love it because... Uh, it's very interesting because now we're in 2023. Mm. What's hot, you know, amongst... Well, I think the big issue, the, the, the big ticket in architecture and certainly in, in architecture research is housing. It dominates so much of our contemporary media. It affects most people's lives, unfortunately, in a, in a negative way. Housing affordability, housing supply, appropriate housing to suit, you know, diverse audiences of people ageing in place. I remember when I... Um, when I first went to, uh, I did my PhD at Monash University and uh, when I first met with Shane Murray there um, to, to say I was interested in, in doing a PhD, would you be interested in having me on board as a candidate? I said to Shane, look, I'm conscious that you know, at Monash you do a lot on housing and I don't want to be treading on your toes. And he said to me, Damon, we could have we could have a thousand of you doing PhDs in housing and we're only going to just scratch the surface and this is the next big research topic for at least the next decade. And that was 10 years ago and um, he, you know, he certainly wasn't wrong. Excellent because I think how we've spoken about housing for a very long mm. time in our state, in Sydney. We've been mm. talking about the missing middle for mm -hmm. a very long time as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like this year mm. and the recent years, in the recent months, it's now or never almost. Mm. Is it purely because of economic um, mm. reasons or is it that we cannot leave it further because housing takes so long mm. and, you know, because of your participation in academia and mm. government, mm. we understand that much of it really relies on policy. Yep. Can you tell us a bit yep. more on, 
you know, yeah. how you've approached it. Yeah, so I mean, look, making housing change is it's a long game. It really has a, a very stretched out time frame and there are different viewpoints. Um, there is the we cannot wait any longer. We just need to go up and out. We just need supply wherever we can get it. And then you've got all of the sort of nuances of established character and neighbourhood fit and how do you deal with that. And, and just introducing new housing forms takes an extraordinarily, extraordinarily long time to get through the planning system. So um, the, the interesting thing is it doesn't matter whether you're in Sydney or Adelaide or Los Angeles, the issues are the same. We don't have enough housing we don't have enough affordable housing we don't have enough diverse housing so not enough choice not enough affordability not enough supply and it seems to not matter how big the city is or how the city is planned whether it has a lot of apartment buildings in it and there's that, that culture of apartment living or whether it's green leafy you know single family home suburbs every city is coming off a low base of supply that they need to radically um, increase we're tying it into our overall arching theme this season. Mm -hmm. We're exploring the value of the architect, mm -hmm. our roles and our diverse backgrounds. And I think what I see you do really, really well is that you actually work across disciplines. You work so collaboratively between the academia, industry, mm -hmm. practice, government, and you often talk about how you work on practical research that yep. have an actual project yep. at any one time to implement it. Can you tell us a bit more on why you said it takes so long and mm -hmm. how have you begin to use projects to begin to test those yep. ideas? So the, I'm, I'm what you would call a practice-based researcher. So rather than writing a lot about what I do, so don't rather than doing, uh, for example, journal articles, I do project-based speculation. There's three forms of design research. There's research on design, which is you know, architectural history and theory. There's research for design, which is the type of technical research every architect does on every project. And there's research through design. And it's where you use design as a tool to see the world differently and to, um, to interrogate issues and speculate on what might be possible. And so that's, that's where my work lands. Um, so I did a practice-based PhD and um, have continued that with expanded research since. So it's, it's about being able to design without a real client, without a real brief, and to keep unpicking or interrogating the issue through designing propositions that test an idea. So rather than being a one-off project where you're saying, oh, look, here's a housing response for this particular client, for this particular location, how do we scale this up? It's about designing um, to demonstrate that what you're doing is scalable across allotments, across suburbs, across cities, and hopefully, you know, internationally as well, to design housing as a system, as a systematic response rather than a one-off. And I think it's one of the unfortunate limits of architectural practice is that you are necessarily driven in most cases by budgets, timelines, um, who is going to pay to undertake research that takes a project from being that bespoke one-off response to a systematised um, response. One of the great privileges I have as an academic is that I can do something like a PhD over a number of years and I can do expanded research projects coming out of that and just keep chipping away at the one issue until you're able to get it in front of enough people to show that, okay, this is a scalable model and we can do something with it. It then gets down to that, as you, as you see, got to that, that issue of working with government. Architects have no shortage of ideas. How do you get it in front of people who can actually get it into the system, into the planning system, for example? And for me, that's been a case of, of being partly lucky and partly um, relentless in just pursuing the one housing idea over a number of years and finding the right people who can champion it. So in my case, I should go back and say what it is so that the listener, I guess, is aware of, of, uh, of what it is. In very simple terms, I call it Bluefield Housing. It's a co-location housing model that allows multiple houses on the one allotment, regardless of the allotment size. So traditionally it would be, you know, the minimum lot size for this area is 350 square metres. 
So you, know, you do the done numbers. If your if your block is bigger than seven hundred, um, you know, seven hundred square meters, you can split it into so a subdivision thing. So knock down, rebuild um, in the suburbs. My model is about saying, well, what if we incentivize people to keep the existing house on the lot, renovate that, refurbish it, extend it, alter it, whatever you need to do, to turn it into a smaller um, house, or you can split it into two or more um, houses so you can divide it. And then also allow people to build on the back, either as an attached um, element and or a detached backyard home. And if people can fit three or four things on the lot and individually they don't meet the minimum lot size, let's ignore that. Let's just look at a design-led response. Can we get um, two, three, four dwellings on the block through co-locating and sharing high quality landscape rather than carving it up rather than subdividing the block and fencing it off and essentially build the same amount of stuff that people are building to do a large single family home but configured differently to create multiple dwellings and so i call it bluefield housing because it's really based on those or for those suburbs that are traditionally quarantined from density increases and so we have the green fields, everyone kind of understands what that is, you know, open land usually on the edges of a city, um, brownfield, so previous commercial or industrial use that's been converted to housing for the first time, greyfield housing um, that is a, a term coined by Peter Newton out of Swinburne University. Greyfields are the, um, the older sort of tired suburbs where the housing is perhaps underperforming economically and, and environmentally and, and, and performatively, um, so people knock them down and without worrying about it. And so I've, I've argued over the last few years that we need a new definition, and I call it the blue fields, to extend that, that sort of colour nomenclature, um, to say what about all these other areas of a city that are meant to remain largely unchanged when we have all these other you know, targets for, for doing infill. That's kind of a, a, a bit of a, a long-winded way of saying, you know, in a nutshell, but what I do is saying, let's design housing that kind of looks and feels like single family housing, but performs legally and financially like a small block of units. So in my case, it was, it was a matter of, well, I gave a presentation on this years ago and the person in the audience was the CEO of one of the local councils in Adelaide. He came up to me afterwards and said, we've, we've got a lot of um, houses like the ones you're talking about, you know, adding on to for an extra house and all that sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, I, I know you do. It's one of, the, one of the areas I've been looking at as a, as a focus. And he said, when you finished your PhD, you should, you know, we, we should talk. I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So we did. And um, I contacted him and said, look, I'm, I'm, I've finished everything now and I've kind of got some capacity to do something for, for you or with you. And so we did a study um, bringing in three other councils and the State Planning Commission in, in Adelaide. And it was um, because we had the CEO of one of these councils who wanted to take it forward. They're able to contact other CEOs and say, look, you've got housing kind of like ours. And it's all to do with people worried about knockdown rebuild in character areas and houses being lost um, that if they're not heritage protected and gentrification, so houses, you know, just constantly getting big extensions on them and becoming increasingly unaffordable, so a lack of housing choice and loss of landscape because when houses are knocked down, of course, everything goes. It's, you know, the block is cleared in, in its entirety, so massive loss of tree canopy and urban tree corridors and all that sort of stuff. And so it was, a, it was having a CEO being able to say, well, look, everything you're talking about kind of affects us and it's not just us, it's the council next door and the one next door to that and the one next door to that. And so we had this team together of, of people wanting to test this idea from the PhD further. And so we did four design studies looking at well, how small of a, of a lot can we make this work on? And we got it down to 325 square metres. We could get two houses on that pretty comfortably. Uh, and we went up to a quarter acre block of about 925, 75, 975 square metres. And we got a small co-housing development on that and when I say we got it's all on paper it's all it's all speculative and, it's, and it is this you know this design research and from there it was a case of saying well look now we've got these four projects in the bag we've I did one in each of the four council areas that was involved in the project but completely anonymized the site so it wasn't as if well the small one belongs to this council and the extra large belongs to that council it was a case of saying these any of these four could be in any of these council areas in Adelaide but they could be in Sydney, they could be in other suburbs of Adelaide, they could be in Melbourne, they could be in Los Angeles. 
tested the idea with a um, housing competition for Los Angeles with um, my colleague Alicia Bennett, um, who was then at Monash and is now um, working for the government in Tasmania. And um, uh, we had you know, got an honourable mention in that. So kind of, you, know, you get a nice jury citation that kind of says this is a great idea for Los Angeles. And so you're picking up this momentum where people are saying, look, we all have the same problems. Here is one of the solutions, which goes back to what you were saying about the problems, how do you solve them and how does government kind of um, be informed. It's about saying this isn't going to solve the housing crisis, letting people build on something in the backyard that's maybe bigger than an accessory dwelling unit and, you know, can be rented and sold. It's very, a very important part of, the, of this model. It's about saying that is one jigsaw puzzle piece. Then you've got apartments, you've got transit-oriented developments, you've got greenfields. So greenfields has reared its head again in, in Adelaide recently with the housing minister releasing um, new greenfield land um, and people are up in arms over that. But the minister is saying, you know, all this housing research, I've, I've read it all, I've read, I've, you know, I've read all the stuff everyone's produced, everyone has all these issues about greenfields and why it's bad and why it might be able to help but no one's able to show me where am I putting all these houses that I've got to put somewhere. And so Greenfields has to still be part of the discussion. So that's a really interesting sort of shift back to that traditional way of doing residential you know, subdivisions. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a very long answer <laughs> no, to your no, initial really question. Because I think um, that's a great way to summarise it in a mm. short amount of time to share with our listeners today. And I think housing is such a personal topic. Mm-hmm. I think any adult, you know, Moving out of home as you grow older, your your lifestyle changes. And I think what I particularly like about all your research is first you position it where Bluefield Housing is at the intersection between NIMBY and YIMBY, yep. which is an interesting one because we'd like to hear yeah. how they these constraints and these community kind of interface with what you're proposing yes. versus where there's a unique pitch here where you talk about ageing well yes. um, as well. And I think we don't take ageing seriously enough mm-hmm. because I think a lot of us are still very young professionals mm-hmm. working. Currently, mm-hmm. uh, most architects probably think they'll never retire. Yeah, Maybe it yeah. won't be for them. Yep. But uh, if we look at it carefully, seniors living starts as early as fifty-five plus, yeah. which we're not too far away. Yeah. Um, and I think universal access is almost should mm-hmm. be universal yep. to its title. And you talk about livable housing yep. implications as well. So, what makes it unique, and why should we design? A, across all those criteria because yeah. we could easily put everybody in high-density yep. units yep. if we're shot on land, for example, yep. and we want to make sure urban sprawl is not real. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the, the, the key things for the work I've been doing is being able to, you, you've got to find a way if you're wanting to bring something new into the housing system, you've got to find a way to make it relatable to everyone. And... Everyone understands ageing because if they don't have someone in their family or in their circle who is an older person facing not even major challenges but just facing the thing of how long do you want to live where you're living now? It's been a great house for 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is. What's going to happen in the next 10 to 15? If you don't know someone like that, you can at least relate to it because it's not rocket science. It's not some grand theory about for every square metre of greenfield land, it costs the community X thousands of dollars to develop it because you've got to build a road and sewers and all that sort of stuff. People disin- the general, when I say people, the general public disengages from that sort of stuff. And why, why wouldn't they? You know? Whereas you talk about ageing and it's an instant entry into a topic. And so I'm able to talk to CEOs, mayors, planning staff, state government, and local residents, you know, save our suburbs people, about where where do people go when their housing no longer suits them and they'd like to get into something different, more appropriate, usually smaller, where do they do that within their local area? How do they do that without a massive shift from what they've known and loved? What happens in a lot of suburbs is that you lose a house through knockdown rebuild and there's that loss of landscape that I was talking about before. So there's huge collateral damage from knockdown rebuild, KDR. You, you lose cultural memory, uh, the, the built character, the landscape character. The other thing you lose is affordability. 
because quite often when houses are, let's listen to the dumbest way of doing it. And when I say dumb, it's not a, not a criticism necessarily. It's just, it just means like mute. What's the, what's the simplest way to do it? You knock down one, you do a duplex. They share a party wall and they might have a courtyard garden. What often happens is that each one of those houses individually will sell for more than the value of the house they replaced. So you get half the lot size. You don't often get half the house because there's still often three bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms. So it's the same amount of accommodation configured differently. And because it's all new and shiny, it costs more than the, the house that was knocked down to replace it. And so you, duplexes are great for doubling the density uh, of a lot, but they don't provide another housing choice. Um, in fact, if anything, it takes away a, a, what would have been a more affordable choice. So if you start to then talking to people about, well, okay, so the let's let's talk about the, the classic image of an older person for many people would be a little old lady whose husband died, you know, 10 years ago because, you know, it's in, in our society women generally outlive men uh, and it's quite often by um, a number of years. Um, so you've got someone who's been living in the family home on their own for a long time. They really would like to do something different, smaller, step-free step free thresholds and showers and all sorts of no-brainer stuff. Where do they go into you know, a new property that is affordable that hopefully frees up some of the value that's locked into the house that they own? You know, They might be asset rich, cash poor. Can they do something um, to, uh, to, to leverage some of that money and get a better outcome and stay in the community they love. It's really, really hard to do. And so when I'm faced with talking to people and trying to convince them that we should be allowed, we should be letting people build something on the back and maybe that's for them to move into and they sell the thing at the front to be able to fund the whole thing. Or they go in with, you know, the little old lady has two other little old lady friends who are also widowed. What if they, you know, two of them sell up, the three of them pull their resources, they can afford to do something. And if they wanted to rent out one of the houses or sell it, that's not going to break the suburbs. It's not going to be the end of the world. And by talking through an ageing lens, you know, we like to use the word lens a lot. It's, it's been overused. But it's helpful to talk things through a, a layer of ageing because it's very difficult for someone then to stand up and say, yeah, but I still don't like it. Because then they have, they have to argue, they have to argue beyond the architecture beyond the sort of desired outcome and argue why the reasoning behind the housing model is not sound. Uh, and so I will, I was going to say, I will quite unashamedly use the ageing trump card. And I guess I do, I do use it as a, as a, not a weapon, but as a way of legitimising what I'm doing because the problem with trying to intensify the older suburbs is that uh, so much housing policy has been about if we do apartment buildings, if we do transit corridors, if we do greenfields, then, and this is the language used in all of the, all of the housing plans across the country, 85% of the city will, or the suburbs will remain, in inverted commas, largely unchanged. And there's this whole idea that, you know, there are these certain areas that can do the heavy lifting of housing supply and the rest can be left to their own devices. And so... As soon as you say, well, look, hang on, the suburbs change a lot, but they change to become single-family homes and we see people add en-suites on the side, extensions out the back. What if that en-suite, you know, if, if I say, if we make that a kitchen, we can trigger another dwelling because then the, the building at the front can become self-contained. We can do the extension out the back with the kitchen and that becomes self-contained. And then, look, you let people do a double garage out the back, why can't they do a garage-sized backyard home and that's a third and they share the landscape rather than carving it up? Is that going to break the bones of the suburb? And let's talk about who's going to be living there. The difficulty is that people, people associate density with the slums of tomorrow and noise and, you know, too many cars and too much, you know, where does the rubbish get picked up and where is the laundry hung and all that sort of stuff. So cars garbage, laundry, they're the sort of big things that people use as crutches to say oh, we can't, you know, we, we, we can't allow this here. But as soon as you start personifying it and talking about who might go there, it completely changes the, the tenor of the conversation and people can start then saying, yeah, okay, look, this, this makes sense. How do we 
make it happen. It's amazing because I think it's a great way to almost now we could even loop back because as we started this episode, you started talking about in the very first episode mm. what people were talking about were culture, mm. you know, that theory of really honing in on what mm. it means to be living. And I think as you tease out some of these recent topics in your current book that's about yeah. to launch at the end of the year, yeah. and hopefully as this episode goes live, it's absolutely that's right on time to keep the conversation <laughs> going. Um, I'm fascinated and very interested in the way you describe it because it seems to prioritise living yes. rather than purely square metres, even though you've yes. gone through the research to justify it because living is so diverse. Mm. We have a demographic that's so multicultural, you know, the ages are of different you know, combinations a household is, as we always argue, it's no longer going to be what we see today. Yes. How does your project hone in on that that's different from what other theoretical research yep. that has been out there? Because I understand we can't look after everyone, but mm-hmm. we can attempt to have something that can be extrapolated and rolled out for many more so we become yep. even more inclusive. Yes. I think the what, what, what differentiates the stuff I do, and I have to be careful saying this because I don't want it to ever sound like what I'm doing is mind-blowingly amazing. Like what I do is architecture. The reality is that most housing researchers in this country are not architects. They are from business schools and universities and they do excellent research. They're, they're urban and regional planners. They do excellent research. But the, the, the research relies on this notion that if you get the policies and the principles and the economics correct, the housing will follow. So you set up the pins and then the architects will come in and they'll do the housing and um, hopefully make it pretty enough that people are going to like it and not kick up a fuss. I come in and say, look, I don't actually start with the economics and the zoning principles or any of that sort of stuff. I don't start with public transit or any of that. I start with the house. And it's a very naive position to come into the housing debate in fa- as far as academia is concerned, it's a rather naive position because you have to start convincing people, well, why would you start with what a bedroom is and how that operates or how, like the on, you know, I mentioned about an ensuite, I come in and come, come at it and, you know, I've got this very, I'll use the word dumb again, just this very dumb way of looking at it saying, look, there's that house, see that ensuite box on the side? Everyone knows it's a bathroom, particularly if there's a window in it that's obscured glazing. People know that people, people just put a box on the side to create a bathroom for what was probably a living room or a parlour in an old house and they do that to turn it into an ensuite bathroom because that's what the real estate market dictates and what people find is, you know, is, is a high level of comfort or whatever. And I look at it and say, I can build the same sized thing but it can be a kitchen. And if I do a kitchen, then what was a parlour then became a bedroom, now can become a living room because we can just knock again, architect's hat on, we just knock a big opening in that side wall, put a larger lintel in, and rather than a little door through into the ensuite pod, we've got an opening and there's the kitchen and we can have an island bench and it connects through and that's great. Um, and then you're talking about that sort of stuff, which is sort of, it's lowercase a architecture. It's what people do, you know, think of, you know, small practitioner architects in particular, their bread and butter is housing alterations and additions. It's, it's what they do day in, day out. It's then how do you take that thinking and systematise it into something that can create change throughout a suburb and increase that diversity um, of the housing. You then get into discussions around, all right, we've got to stop producing the same types of houses. So, you know, it's always two bedrooms minimum, in, and I'm not talking about apartments and studios. And I'm talking about like this suburban housing. No one puts in a one bedroom. <laughs> um, it's always two, you, three if people can fit it, yeah. but two and a half bedrooms, uh, sorry, two and a half bathrooms, one living space, but two if you can squeeze it, all that sort of stuff, which goes back to that issue of, you know, um, unaffordability because, you know, the, the new houses are as much accommodation as the old, even though they're on half the, the, size, the, the lot size. And I come in and say, look, I think we need to start doing some one bedrooms, but do them in, uh, you know, as, as high amenity as we can, because if we're going to create more affordable housing choice in the suburbs, something's got to give, and that something has to be the size of the house. We have to. And it was interesting in the, uh, the co-housing co-housing for ageing well project that I was talking about before um, that was the one with the multiple councils and the 
state planning commission in it. We were really lucky to have one of the state planning commissioners on that project who by background is a residential developer. And when we were having this discussion about single bedrooms, that this person said, we, we really should look at two bedroom options. And we do have some two bedroom options in the, in the project. We should look at it because look, I, I can add a second bedroom for not much, you know, a few thousand dollars, because if it's, a, if it's an unserviced room, we're really just talking, you know, pretty basic construction and a very basic square meter rate. And I said, that's great, but that small expenditure up front to add the second bedroom adds enormous amount of value to that property. So if it's going to be rented, it's going to rent for way more than it would if it was a one bedroom. If you're going to sell it, it's going to sell for way more. So we have to do something about it. So let's focus on one bedrooms, but make them as good as we can. And the other benefit of that in, in my model is that it frees up more of the garden, which you know is the whole purpose of co-location is that you can keep the house at the front, add stuff around it, divide the house if you want to, um, and keep significant landscape. If you've got a mature tree out the backyard, you can work around it. If you can't, you create a deep root soil zone so that you can plant a large or, uh, or medium-sized tree, at least one. And so if we do one bedroom, there is that other benefit of you know freeing up um, the ground plane for landscape. And so it's been a bit of a, a, a long road to convince people that it's, look, it's going to be okay to do one bedroom. Of course, if we can provide two bedrooms, we would always do that if it can be afforded and if there's room because two is going to be better than one. But we need to look at doing things very differently. One of the things I do in my work, and it's been incredibly powerful, is I bring up images of the, so, so the housing I'm dealing with are, you know, what in Adelaide we would call cottages and villas. So uh, and in Sydney they'd be referred to more as bungalows. Um, but they, the, you either get the symmetrical front cottage, so hallway down the middle, bedrooms either side, or you get a projected bay villa where one of those rooms punches for. Um, what I do is show photographs of these, and they're, they're Victorian era, so sort of from 1890s through to about 1910, 1920. I show photographs of these from back from when they were newer dwellings, and there are photographs of people in them, and um, you, can, you can see them going about their day-to-day -day lives. And it shows how much activity and programming there was in these original four rooms plus a kitchen lean-to. And so I'm able to say, look, we've got to stop thinking about these houses in their current form with their en-suites and their, and their back-enders and, you know, incursions into the roof and all this sort of stuff and garages on the side because the driveway wasn't called a driveway, it was called a carriage lane because it was for horse and carriage and there might have been stables out the back. There was certainly no ensuite bathroom. The bathroom might have been a toilet at the back. You know, until about 1910, the toilets were out the back when they moved into the house. They didn't have backyard extensions and kids didn't have their own bedrooms. And we went through that whole nuclear family thing and the American suburbanisation of housing and houses got bigger. And now we've, uh, we've adapted these older houses to match that suburban ideal of um, the big backyard plus the big extension plus the bond suites and all that sort of stuff and so you're able to talk about housing on a continuum and bring people back to saying well look if we and this is another long-winded answer to your question if we start saying that we shouldn't consider one bedroom and going small um, and we should be letting people you know keep doing what they're doing we're ignoring the fact that this is just a moment in time for these housing, for this housing, and we never could have predicted, you know, back at the turn of the, the you know, the twentieth century, that houses and suburbs would change the way they, you know, the way they would. How can we imagine when we had carriage lanes that there would be a car in a driveway, let alone a garage for that, let alone two cars, let alone electric with solar panels and battery chargers and all that sort of stuff. And so it's about how we, we say, well, look, our housing has to be spoken about very, very broadly and we have to think about a whole variety of options in the suburbs, on the fringes, in the cities, in apartments and sort of you know, every, every possible choice on the spectrum. It's great to hear because I think I love the long-winded answers because <laughs> it really, really dives into the topic. And I think what's great here is that I'm able to hear you talk about your advocacy, the advocacy work that mm -hmm. you do and really the value of our profession. Yes. 
And I think the contrast between what he started off with, because it's great, because most of the times, like you said, numbers speak. Yes. And lots of people recognise that these numbers could be indicating a pattern. Yeah. And to what you're talking about, what's fascinating, it just reminds me of anyone's relationship with the two websites, realestate.com or domain. Mm-hmm. And immediately housing is reduced to the logos, how many bathrooms. Yes. One, two, two and a half. Yep. People recognize that as value. Yep. How many bedrooms? There's another logo. How many garages, parking spots, mm. the land size, mm. and uh, whether you have a dwelling in the backyard or not, mm-hmm. as extra income or not, whether mm-hmm. that is a hindering or not, it varies yep. as well. Because what you are able to talk about is to take a general public, our community beyond that. Because yes. if tomorrow we measured real estate values according to the quality of the space that you've just yes. described, yes. access to greenery because we recognise it's very powerful to reach wellness and sustainability yeah. and holistic living and all the rest, yeah. it would be a game changer. Yeah. And to hear you talk about our role, what kind of, how do I describe this? As an architect, we are very visual. Where, mm-hmm. Like you said, I love the fact that you can show photos. Mm-hmm. You're able to synthesise that to communicate to a general public easier because mm-hmm. we can relate to it. We have different advantages in our skill set that allows us to show a different size and rethink a problem. Mm-hmm. Why are more architects out there participating in different forums to allow mm-hmm. that to happen at a greater speed? Yeah. And, and what do we bring that's a different edge aside from what everyone knows of us as being able to design? Yeah, I think there are a lot of architects out there doing great work and getting it in front of maybe an interested planner at council or a um, an elected member, someone you know who shows some interest, but they don't have the opportunity to get it beyond that that point. So I'm incredibly privileged to work as an academic who is doing practice-based research because no one's paying a bill on it. I have no billable hours. I have no timesheet I have to keep. I have research outputs I have to produce as an academic, but I'm able to, I have, a, I have one donkey really in my research and I ride this poor thing and I'll keep riding it until it says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, <laughs> I'm done. I'm able to go and present it again and again and again to different audiences until it starts gaining traction. And I don't I, and I know there are people out there working in practice, in paid practice, you know, day to day doing great work, but they just don't have the time or the capacity to be able to work in that way because that project has to be parked. Who's going to pay for the, you know, for their time to go and schlep it around to people, let alone how do they get that avenue to get it in front of people? The other privilege I have is that I'm able to stand up in front of any audience and say, look, I don't have a horse in this race. I'm not going to get project work out of this. I'm not trying to run a business off the back of this. I'm not a developer. I'm just here because my job is to do good research that has a public benefit. So that's why I'm doing it. And that kind of takes the heat out of a lot of the argument. To go to your question of of how we talk about quality uh, rather than numbers and icons and you know bedrooms and bathrooms and all that sort of stuff. Because I have the time, I I put a lot of time into my drawings. So I do my own visualizations and all my own output and illustrations, which is great because it gives me sort of complete autonomy over how the work is communicated. But it's all, it also takes a heck of a lot of time. But again, I've I've got that time as a researcher to be able to draw things really intricately. So everything I put forward, if I'm talking about a bedroom, it's got everything a bedroom should have. I will draw a cat sitting on the corner of a bed, for example. I will draw a dog, someone walking a dog in the backyard or a dog just walking across the floor of a living room. So I'm able to talk to people and say, you know, for example, gut return to ageing. It's really important that we're, we create places with gardens for older people so that they can have a pet because we know that pets have great mental health benefits. We also know that in extreme circumstances they are um, that they mitigate suicide ideation because this and this, this is that where there's great housing research from people who aren't architects uh, who have the data to show that people who might otherwise contemplate suicide in in their older age say I can't do it because who's going to look after you know the dog? Who's going to look after the cat? 
uh, as well as the you know the obvious benefits of as you're getting older, you're bending over to do a water bowl or a food bowl, let alone taking them out for walks and grooming them and just all of that love and, uh, and affection you get from your pets. So I'm able to draw things and say, look, if we allow this, we can have people moving into these things and they might be able to get into a more appropriate house sooner than they otherwise would. Um, and, you know, you draw these little things and whether people see them or not, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of there and you're able to point. And it's a really dumb example, maybe not a dumb example, it's a really basic example of, you know, okay, so great, you draw a cat on a bed and all of a sudden people are saying, yeah, let's make housing policy. It's not about that. It's not about that. But it is, I think, architects have this ability to get into the head of people who will occupy their spaces in a way that other um, disciplines can't. They just can't because they're not spatially trained. They don't create visual collateral like we do. And so I think... We have to be able to show things as much as possible. Really simple example is in the co-housing for Aging Well report, I spent a lot of time building up the model, doing all the orthographic drawings, doing isometrics to explain things. So all the sorts of visual, the visual kit that people would do for a competition, for example. You know, you've got to show it in different scales in different ways that play to different visual literacies of your audience. And I spent a lot of time doing high quality renders and I did renders so I spent a lot of time on of a cottage making sure the stonework was right and the coins and the detailing around the, the timber work and the water goods and all that sort of stuff so that I could show I set, set it up by saying this is the thing and of course the natural question at the end is what's it going to look like in the suburb and I say so this is what it's going to look like and I start not with my thing but I always finish with that. I start with from the street, it's going to look like this. And it's a really high quality render of um, the cottage and it's been altered internally, but you can't see any change at all. The garden is, is all modelled, all that sort of stuff. And I've done it for a corner lot so that I, then I say, and as you come around the corner, you can you see the corner of the house is still intact, the fencing, the garden, it's all there. And then as you come around, you see an extension to the house. But rather than being... Uh, you know, an extension of a big kitchen, dining, living room on the back of this house. This is a second dwelling. So we've got two bedrooms in the cottage. We've got a one-bedroom dwelling here um, that's attached to the back of the cottage. As we swing left, we see the shared garden. And in the backyard, that's not a garage. That's a one-bedroom backyard home. And if we keep going down the side street, we see a double carport next to that. And so you're, you're using your architect's skill to build a narrative around it. And you're not starting with, here is my thing, please like it. I'm going to now justify to you why I've done it. You're starting with, here are the conditions. And as you come around, here's my thing at the end. And it's kind of a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? And people, people they, they never come back and say, I hate it. I've had people, I presented at a conference, at the Uhuri conference, and people said, well, that's okay for you because you're an architect and so you've designed something that's very palatable and that's, you know, it, it looks, you know, it, it looks good or whatever. What about, you know, what about all the rubbish that builders and developers do? And I'm able to say, but, but what I'm showing you is my interpretation of how it works. The housing model is a system that is robust enough that, look, someone's going to do a back-ender on a cottage they're going to have a garden and they might do a backyard home. Now, if we get the planning instrument correct around that, it might not be to everyone's taste. And I might look at it and go, oh, God, that's a really ugly way of doing it. It's not how I would have done it. But this, the system is, is there. It's intact. The, the whole thing is not going to suddenly become a horrible slum because, you know, a builder did their builder's job on it rather than an architect doing theirs. And so I think it's, it's how we use our skill as architects in terms of critical thinking, design thinking, spatialising, 3D form, but also that ability we have to visually communicate things in a way that others can't. And then you've got to be able to stand up and present it verbally, <laughs> which is a whole different sort of kettle of fish. No, uh, yeah, no, yeah. no, because uh, thanks, Damien, on that <laughs> one, because I think uh, that was a beautiful way to articulate what we do best and hope 
hopefully we are actually good at it because mm. I'm about to lead you into mm. the bonus section of our episode today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've spoken about this because, you know, I think most of our audience and listeners might know you from being Dr. Damien. Yes. <laughs> and with that, you've got your serious face on and yes. you're teaching probably. Yes. You know, when you're an academic and you're working with government, mm. it is serious business. Mm, serious. And what you talked about is most of, you know, the general public might know us as great visualisation yes. artists because we're able to imagine it because more often than not I have friends and family when I help them with their housing, they say, I just can't imagine it. Yes, that's talk right. about that a t- very refined way of communicating. Mm. But what I wanted to swing around mm. is that verbal communication mm. that you talked about because I think most of us probably don't know you from mm. your diverse background from theatre. <laughs> from the theatre. <laughs> yes. And, you know, why it's so important to be able to tell the story because yes. you've led into it where that's a key point in really having successful communication. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, and I think I've had the privilege to join you today where yep. you're going to share with us, you know, about what makes it so important and powerful to tell the story yes. and how you have been able to take that and implement it in your work. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be, you know, at Bates Smart here in Sydney today and I'm going to be giving a presentation on presenting um, yeah. our, our work because we get trained so well in architecture school in a whole variety of things and we come out with a great skill set and then, of course, we get into practice and our knowledge just explodes because we're exposed to architecture, you know, hour after hour, you know, day after day, and hopefully we love it, but we're not really taught how to present. So a long time ago, uh, before architecture, um, I did work in the theatre and um, I guess I came into architecture maybe not with a natural skill set for designing and drawing. I had to work pretty hard at that, but I did come in with a fairly natural affinity for standing up and talking about my work and we you know I think we've all been in situations as architecture students where you've watched a presentation and it has either sunk a scheme or at least taken the grade down or elevated it where we've thought oh gee this this project is actually way better than it looks on the page or the screen or the poster um, and so we're going to be talking about that today um, with, with some people here at Bates Smart about how to present your work. Um, I have to say there is zero chance I would have been able to get my work where it is today without being able to um, present it verbally in a convincing manner to such a diverse group of people because at any given time you have to be talking about someone from the state planning commission or the state planning department or a local council and the local council might be a planner in terms of dealing with zoning issues and applications day-to-day or a strategic planner or a mayor or a ceo or an elected member who got voted on the nothing's going to change the suburbs you know thing and here i come in saying i'd like to change the suburbs so, um, and then you've got the, the Save Our Suburbs people who, who generally hate my stuff and can sit through an entire presentation and then say, yes, but I chose to live here because it's leafy and green and I like it the way it is. And that's when I bring out the history stuff that I was talking about before saying, yes, but I, I get, I completely get that. However, you're loving, if I can say this respectfully, your narrow window of your experience of this suburb let's bring up some slides and go back to what it looked like originally and I, you know, you can you you have that narrative and i think creating that narrative arc through a project takes time to do and then you have to have the confidence to be able to stand up and deliver that and you get better and better and better at it the more you do so i think my background in theatre gave me, I guess, maybe a natural confidence. That doesn't mean you don't have nerves, and I'm going to be talking about nerves this afternoon (laughs) in our session. You have nerves, but you know how to kind of channel them and you know how to present yourself to an audience. Simple things like facing them, not turning your back on them. And if you've got work on the screen, understanding that you've you've got different visual literacies in the audience. And so if you're talking about a floor plan and say, so you can see on the floor plan, most people can't. So it's about going up and physically using your finger and pointing and saying, here <laughs> and um i guess that's that's been a huge part of the success of the work and when i say the success so what i'm what i haven't really covered off is 
what we're, what we're doing now is writing the planning policy for the model. So it's going to, we're calling it co-located housing in South Australia. And uh, we're going out to hopefully um, consult, uh, public consultation in 2024 uh, ahead of it, uh, hopefully making its way into the planning and design code in, in um, South Australia so that it will become a permitted form of, the, the model will become a permitted form of infill development. So um, it's taken a lot of presenting of the work to get it, but to get people over the line with you and to bring them on board with you. Thanks, Damien. I think that is a very lovely way to wrap this up and we really look forward to seeing it get published and hearing Thank more you. about it. Ah, uh, yeah. So, the, yes, the publisher, I should I should yep. get you to exit through the gift shop. The, <laughs> the book Bluefield Housing as Alternative Infill for the Suburbs is uh, out um, from Routledge in uh, December uh, this year, 2023. The It's in hardcover and paperback, but the e-book will be completely open access and free. So free to download, you can you don't have to, to spend a cent. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Sally. <laughs> this has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guest interviewer, Sally Sue, and to our guest, registered architect and senior lecturer in architecture at UniSA, Dr. Damien Madigan. It's always fascinating to hear about your work in urban infill project strategies for improving housing in Australia and in other places around the world. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.